Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science on Triple R. We've got a pretty big show for you today. We've got three guests on, and I've got Dr. Susie in the studio. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday to you. Uh, we were going to have Chris KP, but apparently he uh, he fell off his bike. I know. Such a letdown. You hey? can't you can't make it. <laughs> so, I can uh, pretend to be him, but I don't think that'll go well. No. Well, and, and, you know, um, to be fair, uh, everyone needs a weekend off every I hope he's okay, really. Yeah, he's, do, he's doing good. He's, uh, he's caught some loogie, something or other, so he'll be fine. Uh, but we've got some news. We've got uh, three guests, which will be cool. And um, and I'm going to talk about the solar panel installation that I got of this week, which will, is pretty exciting. If, if anyone hasn't heard about this yet, you know, you're missing out, obviously. <laughs> and I should uh, just, all listeners, just say, you know, I need to periodically check the app on my phone to see how my solar panels are going. So there'll be slight delays. Do they have the names show. yet? Uh, no, no. They, they need names. <laughs> I need 15 names. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nothing easier than that, right? Yeah, shouldn't be too bad. Now, let's start off with some news. Uh, what do you got for us, Susan? I want to talk about M&M today. M&M? <laughs> Not the candy. Ah. No. Two words, marathons and myelin. Oh, okay. So, for everyone who hasn't noticed, Dr. Jenny and I have run the Melbourne Marathon four weeks ago. Yeah, well, and huh? as every good scientist does... I went off and studied all things marathon science, obviously, because I'm a nerd. (laughs) And so, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's obvious. Um, Anyway, so I found a story from this week that has to do with um, brain health in marathon runners. And it's quite cool because, um, you know, usually you think that exercise is always known to be really good for you. But this particular one can be revolutionary in the future. And it has to do with myelin. So I'm not sure... How many people know what myelin is? I didn't, so I looked it up, obviously. Um, myelin is the fatty sheaths in your brain. So it's fatty tissue, and it insulates your nerve strands. Right. So it's basically like if you imagine an electric wire, the insulation of an electric wire does the same with your nerve strands. And it's really important because just like electric wire, you don't want it to be exposed, mm. and you don't want it to like cross-function because it can do all sorts of things that are not very nice. Um Worst case scenario, that it can lead to neurodegenerative diseases. So if right. you know, your nerve cells don't work very well, you can have neurodegenerative diseases. It also is something that disappears as we age. Mm. So, you know. Not good. Not a good thing. Yeah. Um, turns out there were some researchers in Spain who looked at myelin in marathon runners. And they saw that because marathon runners have to get energy over such a long time, they you know, eventually run out of energy and their little gels. And so they tap into the myelin in their brain. So they kind of process this and use it as an energy source. They eat their own brains. They eat their own brains, basically, fatty yeah. tissue in the brain. Okay. And so they eat away the insulation of the nerve cells, which you know sounds like a pretty damaging thing. And so they looked at MRI scans um, a day or two after the marathon, and they saw that it's shrunk considerably. Irresponsible of you know and irrespective of hydration levels and whatnot so that's a bad thing but Mm. two weeks after that after the marathon the myelin has restored itself so it's rebuilt itself and that is great because it means if you run marathons semi-regularly you basically train your brain how to rebuild your own insulation wires and that's amazing because if that's something that's disappearing over age you can train your brain how to not age (laughs) 
So I've got to, so as I get older, I've got to run marathons pretty to much. keep sharp. Pretty much. You've been trying to convince me to do this for a while. I know, though. right? <laughs> I could run around I'm just block. looking at your wife in the studio and she's just nodding in the corner. So yeah. I think we've, we've got you convinced now. <laughs> yeah, well, so it's, it's an interesting scenario there because presumably this process of regrowth is there normally, but perhaps to a lower extent. I know. It, so it does regrow, you know, and it's, it's mm. constantly um, taken down and like rebuilt to a degree and, you know, to various degrees. Obviously, when you're younger, more so than when you're older, but like it's getting a real problem once you get older and if you have a predisposition for neuro diseases. So, you know. Yep. People who have MS running in their family and something have this looked at very regularly. So, you know, this is something that could really help and benefit people in the future. And if you know, you know, crack the code how to train your brain how to do it, you can, mm. you know, never age. Imagine mm. that. I'm not convinced uh, I should <laughs> run marathons. I think uh, I'll age gracefully and just... Uh, not even science can convince you. Put, I don't know what to do. put me out of the past. <laughs> it just sounds like such a, such a, big, uh, such a big effort. Uh, you know, but do you have to do, like, what do you get for a half marathon? <laughs> I don't know. They don't have it looked at half marathoners. Maybe that should be next. Is like, does it work for half marathoners? Half marathon, yeah, or a quarter. Well, I don't know because you know it has to do with like a huge energy expenditure. Yep. So I think you know marathon and ultra marathon runners or triathletes. I guess they they'd probably be the main target for this kind yeah. of scenario. Yeah. And which one did you did you run the full marathon I with ran Jenny? The full marathon. Forty-two point two. Forty-two point two kilometers. Yes. Wow. I know. That's a. I had a great time. I did a sprint finish in the MCG. Really? I know. Wow. Had you uh, had you pull up the next day? Good. <laughs> That's the most unconvincing good I've heard in the world. It was yeah. all right. It was okay. Yeah, I had a pretty... slight sore muscles. Um, we have a house that has three stories. So, you right. know, whoever invented stairs was not my friend. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Did your house have a bath? Yes. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, that helped. Very good. All right. Uh, so, for those who've been listening uh, the last few months, they've been uh, hearing me get excited about uh, the, the next uh, solar installation mm-hmm. I've been doing, which is you know, this is the third house I've had to install this on because for some reason, governments still don't require this as a baseline for, know, uh, for new homes, which is re- really weird to me. Which is weird to me, but. Um, I think things like double glazing and, and good insulation and so forth should be a must. But hey, you know. Yeah, don't talk maybe, to the uh, German about double glazing windows. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you We've know, got it triple freezing glazing as standards now. Yeah, so, you know. It gets freezing over there. So, um, anyway, uh, I was very excited a month or so ago about my solar panels, and the installers turned up and they took one look at the, <laughs> the roof and said, Ah, well, you've bought too many. Uh, we can't fit those on the roof. And I'm like, well, we, but I bought them off you. What's going on? So uh, that installation lasted about four minutes. And uh, I was very disappointed because <laughs> I <laughs> walked away. Letdown? Yeah, walked away with nothing. And also uh, there's um, no access to the roof at my house internally. So they said, oh, we can't do it. We need to yeah, do they that. They put up a scaffold and everything. Or what, what are they no, doing? No, you know, like the – I don't want to use the term manhole because, you mm. know, but, you know, the, the hole into the roof, the cavity, mm. um, there isn't one in the house. It wasn't one put in. So – that's another – it's a whole different story. But uh, so I thought, okay, how do we do this? Surely you don't need that. Can you get around it? Went back to the company and they said, yeah, no problem. Easy. And, Struck uh, up at the saw. <laughs> yeah, well, no, they just said they don't need it. Full stop. They can just right. drill in from the side wall. So I thought, okay, that sounds like a, a good solution. And they also said, you know, well, actually 15 – you know, 16 solar panels will fit on your roof. So we're good to go. We'll just re, rebook it with, a, I think, a, you know, a higher-level installer or something. I don't know how it works. Anyway, the, the new group turns up and, you know, they, they get on the roof. This was on Monday. Ah, uh, we're not going to fit all these panels on the <laughs> I, I feel like, like this is going to be an endless back yeah, and forth. Yeah, yeah. But, but that was okay. They said, you know, you've, you've ordered 16 and we could put 15 on. And I said, great. 
you know, put the 15 on. They said, and you can do the inverter can be in the garage. And everything else was fine. All the wiring was fine. So off they went installing. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, I've got one panel left. Yeah, 415. Can I strap that to my car? Yeah, can you put yeah, it somewhere can I, nice? Yeah, because it's a good 415 watt DC source. I thought, what can I do with this? I'm a physics guy. I could surely <laughs> I can, can wire this up. Yeah. No one's going to check, are they? You know, like what what happens? But uh, of course, they, they they take that back because there's um, because you get the credits, the mm. the panel credits from government, which subsidise these. Important point for everyone to know: you do get a good you you know you can get these subsidies. That means that um, you know I have to I think I have to give those subsidies. I'm not worrying about that. That's behind the curtain. But suffice it to say, there are 15 panels on on our roof now, and they are working. Success. And I have the app right in front of me. Let's just. Uh, just quickly check it live on here and see how much we're generating right now. Better not be cloudy, Melbourne. 4.72 kilowatts. That's pretty good. That's not bad. Yeah. Um, I think it'll peak out, caps out at about five because you know, it's one of those things where you order six and a half, and then they five, tell you yeah. there's a 82% efficiency, and you go, oh, so you're selling me six and a half, but you're actually selling me five. Yeah. I understand. That makes some sense to me. But, um, but it's nice. But that's nice. Yeah, it's a sunny yeah. day outside, so lucky you. Yeah. So, but of course, you can't turn them on for those of you out there thinking about this who haven't done it yet you can't turn them on until an inspector comes from the electrical company and i don't know what they do they oh just they gosh. have a look and go that looks awesome it sounds like you can switch complicated. it on yeah and so they did inspection that's all good but that's important because i think there's probably a few shonky supplies out there who are leaving you know large amounts of electricity just live wires all over your roof or something other that. but the inspector checks it out turns it on and what happens five minutes after he turned those on clouds <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, good on you, Melbourne. Uh, but a little bit of sun today. Better than so, hail, so that's isn't it? Nice. Yeah, better than hail. So a little bit of sun, but solar panels are operating. That is and great. I feel Congratulations. Bit, I feel a bit better. Because I feel like you need a trophy now, you know, just for like being... So but, resilient. Well, here they, they they give they give out you know medals and stuff for anything these days. Even even running. It's like world greatest solar panel owner. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, don't I think, you uh, play my medal, right? I, I earned this. <laughs> a lot of a lot of people were asking me, you know, who did you use? Because I, I went through this whole rigor of asking a number of companies and. The weird thing is there was one company, uh, you know, I'm not going to say their name because everyone knows the name of this organization, but they actually offered me, I think, three or four more panels than what this company offered me. And even this one was one too many. Mm. So that would have been like five too many. Yeah. And I think it's just some guy there on the other end of the phone and just Googling my, my address, looks at my roof on the Google <laughs> map and go, oh, I can get about 18 on there, no problem. And, you know, with no real measurements. And... If, if you're wondering why there's a problem with, with putting them on, folks, it's because the anchor points have to be very specific because huh. if they try and anchor them to the wrong locations on your roof, it can cause leakage and so forth. So, you know, on a tin roof, for example, there are the points where the, the roof is connected to the underlying wood structure. Yeah. And that's where you, anchor, you have to anchor to these specific locations. And so, you know, there's some arrangements that just won't work. And, and from a satellite picture, you can't see where these anchor points are on your roof. So until they get up there and actually have a look and measure things, can't they do. can't be 100% sure. So anyway, but I went through this whole process of finding the right um, group. And some of them are really, are really pushy and chonky sellers. And mm. I, I ended up, weirdly, uh, went with the same company that I've used twice before who are actually a little bit dearer, to be fair. They were dearer. Um, but they were they were pretty good. So maybe that's would, a sign of good quality, you know. Yeah, if anyone Three wants times. to know who who I actually used, they can DM me on Twitter and I'll send them the information. I'll do that. But they were um, they were pretty good. But anyway, I'm back. That's I'm amazing. solar powered, and I'm I'm very happy about it. I so. hope it pays off for you. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'll get you your trophy next time, don't you? Well, you know, I think it's 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 got to do something. Something's happening. There's there's juice coming in. I just hope it's going into the hope, right hope place. Hope the sun stays up, right? Yeah. Oh, if you're going to hear me moaning every time the clouds come out now in Melbourne. <laughs> Normally, I love cloudy days, but I just, uh, I'm just watching you look at that app every five minutes. You know, <laughs> it's like you can hear it, but when when the mood goes down, there's clouds outside. Yeah. It's like the new weather weather channel. No, nah, it'll it'll have, it'll be okay. Triple. Folks, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Just an update there. The uh, the panels are producing 4.84 kilowatts. This is giving me a lot of crap over this in the studio. But uh, it's important to know. I know. I want to collect the data and plot it. Yeah. Well, the, this this uh, app I've got plots it. Of course you do. <laughs> in the studio with us now is Dr. Michalis Hajikaku from uh, Deakin University's Center for Integrated Ecology, School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Michalis, welcome to the studio. Hi Shane, thanks thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you in here. Now you're you're actually in the same area as our good friend Ewan, um, Dr. Ewan. That's right. Ewan's a very close colleague and friend of of mine. Oh, yeah, yeah. excellent, excellent. Sorry, he's not here. I think because his his wife may be trekking around Antarctica. He's home taking care of the kids. Is my guess. It's an important responsibility. Yep, yep. Now they're a good team. Those two. Uh, they travel a lot. All over the place. Anyway, you um, now you work on numerical models and tools with regards to the environmental impact or the footprint, essentially, that we get from the food system. That's so right. I, I cannot imagine the complexity of this because when you say the food system, just give us an idea of what, what that involves. Right. That's a, that's a great place to start because um, I guess the food system is not just – I mean, probably immediately most listeners would think of agriculture and mm. the, the production of food. But I guess the definition of the system as a whole is that um, it's much broader than that. It includes right. – it starts from the farm. In fact, it doesn't start from the farm. There's all the inputs that come into the mm. farm in the first place, your fertilizers, your machinery, etc. Yep. And then you've got your – you know, most food goes through a lot of processing stages, you know, to get to the, the form of, of food that we, ha- that, that we know from the supermarket. And then packaging or um, lots of transportation of different raw materials, um, refrigeration in many cases. So there's a lot of aspects from we say we the, the nomenclature we use is from farm to sort of um, consumer and mm-hmm. all those stages of production entail um, emissions, entail different inputs that you need to account for when you're trying to quantify the, the whole the environmental the whole impact of the whole food system. Are there programs or processes or requirements at those various points for recording that information so like if i go from the you know the farm to the distribution point can i easily access data on you know what the environmental impacts are for that part and all the other parts yes so i guess um the challenge that we have as modelers is that each retailer or manufacturer or producer will have very accurate data for mm. their specific product and even you know for different variants of their products that might be produced in different places ac- across the world but we what we tend to work with is more like aggregate data of say a, you know we have data for a, a representative um say um tomato product yep. so we have to then infer you know, you have to make assumptions to come up with the differences between something that, say, comes in a can versus something that, that that's that's in a in a packet or something mm. like that. So um, there is data, I guess, is the yeah. answer, but it often is not. It's it's as with anything in science, it's often quite uh, patchy, and, yeah. and you have to make assumptions. And, and yeah. So let's talk about an example, like like you mentioned the tomato. I think this is a good good one to start with. 
uh, where where are the the sort of peaks if you will in you know going all the way from the grower to to my table where are the sort of environmental impact peaks that you would see do you have a feel for that yeah so it varies tremendously between products mm. so for some products especially meat and livestock products we know that the most of it is happening at the farm right yep. so you know especially when you're dealing with something like ruminant products like mm. emissions like belching of the animals and yep. fermentation yep. methane from that um, as well as impacts on biodiversity and, 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 and land use change, all that is happening in the farm. And probably what you do subsequently doesn't matter that much. Mm. But then in other products like, say, potatoes, for example, which are, have a quite a low environmental impact in terms of production, mm-hmm. um, even the way you decide to cook them at home might right. make a difference, like whether you're going to roast them for one hour in the oven or, um, you know, yeah, yeah. to make delicious potatoes versus um, a boring microwaved sort of boiled potato, uh, which has much less impact because you're you know, obviously cooking for much less time. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, and then it also depends on the metric you're actually looking right. at. Are you looking at emissions? Are you looking at water use? Are you looking at biodiversity? You know, there's all these metrics that we use. Um, so, again, that's the complexity you're talking about. Um, it, it depends on the products. Um, uh, and, and also on the metric that you're Yeah, and I suppose even just in the supermarket, that difference between how you buy them is huge too. I know Cam, who's on either, who's on you know the show after this one, I remember years ago he, he pounded me with this idea that do not buy washed potatoes, Dr. Shane. He said you've got to buy the, the dirty ones because their washed potatoes are sort of super hydrated and there's like so much water just pumped into them to up their, their mass so that you're essentially buying water, mm. you know, whereas, you know, if you... Um, if you buy them and they look like they just came out of the ground, then there's far less processing and they're, you know, they're better for you. Every, you know, is, is that, I mean, that, that must have a huge impact. Up, you know, even potato chips, I suppose, are the same thing. Like where it sits on the supermarket shelf must have an incredible impact in terms of the, you know, what's happening with the environment. As I said, like uh, we know that in aggregate the, the, the farming stages are, are what dominates, mm. like, and that's the case for most foods. Um, but like I said, when you're, say, trying to choose between different products of similar from a similar type, then um, the way it's been processed and the degree to which it's been processed will will matter. Yeah. But overall, like reducing the environmental impacts of your diet was is about mostly making changes to what you eat, mm. rather than to the degree of processing of what you eat. Now you're working on a new metric, a new scoring system for apparently you said sixty five thousand products. That, how do you do that? Well, that's so that uh, <laughs> just just to say here that this is part of a, a project that's led. Um, well, it's in a collaboration and led by the George Institute in, in Sydney, um, and they've already they already have a very uh, good pedigree in this area. By they've got an app called the Food Switch app. Okay. I think Bupa also uses that app, and that helps consumers choose healthier options. Mm. So again, they've got those same thousands of products are on there. Um, and they use the health star metric, which you, you may yep. be familiar with uh, on the packages of Momentus. So we're trying to develop an eco, uh, uh, the, e- the, the sort of equivalent for the environment. Um, and um, we've actually just launched the EcoSwitch app, um, the food, uh, the, and, and users can download that. That at the moment only considers emissions. But to get back to your question, it is quite complex and we do have to make a lot of assumptions. But um, we have because of that um, research that's come before us in the health space we have a lot of good information on Mm. the recipes of those foods exactly what they contain and that we can use 
to also ascertain the environmental impacts. When I'm in the supermarket, there's some things that I assume are problematic. So, you know, if, I, if I'm looking at things like beef, yeah. uh, you know, I'm assuming that's problematic. Even uh, from the same perspective, things like milk, yeah. you know, um, come from a fairly high-intense part of our farming industry. What surprises would I get when I'm looking at this app? Are there things that I would otherwise think are fine that uh, you've come across that stand out as being, holy crap, actually, that's a lot worse than we thought? You're right in that, the, especially when you're looking at just emissions, mm. the, the, the results you're getting are quite obvious. Like the livestock sectors have a very high footprint in that respect. But, um, yeah, we, we were surprised with things like uh, some confectionery, for example, right. uh, especially ones that might contain quite a lot of dairy, uh, chocolate, the delicious stuff, you know, like that we enjoy eating. But, again, it's all about, like, you know, nobody's saying you should not consume any, any of it, but moderate, you know, yeah, the yeah. things that have a higher. And, and often you can switch to something that's, say, a more plant-based option within that category or one that has less of these high-impact ingredients. Um, right. Cocoa itself, for example, right, comes right. up as quite high. So that's yeah. a, another surprising thing. So, yeah. And, and what about transport? Because, you know, if, I, if I'm getting local produce, I can imagine the, the transport impact is much lower than if things are being imported from all over the world. I mean, you know, shipping is such a huge problem worldwide in terms of environmental damage and so forth. So how does that, do you factor that in as well, the point of origin? Absolutely. And I guess the, the, the point is that it depends, again, on the transport. So um, shipping by, uh, by sea is actually extremely efficient. Mm-hmm. It's things that come by air that right. have a high. So um, I don't know if you maybe some of your listeners might also remember in the Planet A series, Saving Planet A with Craig Rucaso, he, he had the example of asparagus coming from, uh, I believe it's Mexico, Peru. Um, and, and in that instance, because it's a fresh product, it comes by air. Yep. So the emissions are huge. Right. But most other things that come by sea um, are actually very low. So actually the emissions associated with the food miles are actually a very low percentage hmm. of, of, of the overall emissions. And it's actually the farming system. Uh, that tends to dominate. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I suppose that's one of those things where we have to take into account, like not just emissions locally, but emissions everywhere in the globe. You know. So just because it didn't happen here, and I'm consuming it, doesn't mean that's not a really problem product. Absolutely, and that's that's definitely the case with things coming from tropical areas mm. of the world where there's a lot of deforestation. Like, uh, you know, palm oil is very is. Yeah. is widely sort of um uh, you know there's a lot of concern particularly indonesia malaysia huge am- amount of deforestation there cattle ranching and soybean production in the amazon um and soy mostly for feed in that case so mm. a lot of people think about soy milk or something as being problematic that's actually not the case it's m- the bark of those of those soybeans would would go to um intensive uh, f- um, you know yeah. cattle feedlots so that those are the kinds of products, sugar as well to a degree, but yes, mm. tropical areas and tropical deforestation is is definitely a concern. Yeah, interesting. Now, Michaelis, tell us about the uh, the modeling itself. I mean, what what does this? Is your background like heavy mathematics and computing? Is that is no, it, no, no, no? I'm I'm an environmental scientist. Right, right. So, how does the model like? What does the model look like in that sense? Right. So we um, we. This area of modeling, I guess we'd call it life cycle analysis or mm-hmm. life cycle assessment, we're basically considering all of the, the inputs that there are to production and all the kinds of emissions um, that, there, that there might be or, or resource use that happens a- along the supply chain. Um, 
and I guess it's um it's a series of matrices, and you use a matrix algebra to basically solve this, these, these, these equations. It's fairly simple sort of linear um, uh, matrix algebra that you use. Um, and uh, I guess there, there are, though, the complexity happens when you're trying to make projections about what's going to happen in the future. There right. you have to also deploy statistics um, based on past historical relationships of trends in yields or other things that you might be looking at. And then the, you, you also get into some spatial statistics as well when you're trying to sort of look at how things play out on, on you know, actually on the ground mm. and different mm. areas of production, etc. Mm. It's interesting. Just before you go, um, when, you, when you look at these various pathways and so forth, there must be some that are more optimized than others that give you insight in to you know, better ways of delivering food to our table. Is that do, do you see those things coming up? Absolutely, and I guess the solution focus is what we what we like, what we're quite keen on promoting here, because otherwise it's there's a lot of doom and gloom, um, yeah. and and making people feel bad about what they're doing too much. So I, I guess yeah. So when you're looking at this sort of the life cycle of a product, often you get hot spots. Like I said, so for your livestock products, those that might be at the, what's happening at the farm. So then you're looking at things like supplements who might that might slash methane or farming in a different way, stocking lower stocking mm. rates, etc. Whereas, say for other products, the packaging or the processing of the materials you use might be more critical. So it's a bit of a bespoke. Um, and then for consumers, like I said, you've got sort of the overall recommendation, but then you can also so more specifically to people's diets. So something we're doing is depending on your budget, and we've got really good data on like what different households in Australia are purchasing. You can optimize the f- the food baskets yep. to, to, for you know constraining for affordability um, and 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 their their sort of cultural uh, preferences as well. Yeah. Interesting. Michael, it's super interesting stuff. Also, you're one of the Victorian tall poppies uh, for this year. Congratulations, Congratulations. on that. Great so accolade. Much. Yeah, Thanks excellent so stuff. Uh, you know, uh, old tall poppy from, I don't know, 2005. <laughs> it's been I, going I for a while. I for another trophy. I don't know. You <laughs> yeah. already have one. Yeah, but congratulations on that. It's a great accolade. Are you heading out to schools or something to talk yeah, to the kids? Yeah, yeah, doing that next year. Yeah, excellent. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that'll be great fun. Uh, kids can be brutal. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. Kids can be brutal. They, you know, they, they, they take what they think that's there's no filter they need more of that <laughs> yeah take some good food hand it out <laughs> they also ask the most amazing questions they do okay they do they do michaels thanks so much for coming in thanks for having me three triple I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm speaking with Ollie Dove, a PhD candidate at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. Ollie, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you do some very interesting work on the foraging behaviour of certain types of birds. Tell us, what sort of birds are you looking at? I work with seabirds, and I work with two species of seabirds in particular, the short-tailed shearwater and little penguins. And where do we find these birds? Are they all around the world, or are they local to Tasmania? Oh, that is such a good question, because the shearwater actually has one of the most incredible migrations. So they're not all around the world, but they are across both hemispheres, depending what time of year it is. So the short-tailed shearwater breeds here in Australia on Uh, around the coast and on islands, but they actually migrate as far as Japan and up to the Bering Sea outside of their breeding season. The little penguins, however, they, as a penguin, do not fly. So they're not migrating up to Japan, but they live around the southern Australia and in New Zealand. But I study the two birds here in Tasmania. 
Interesting. Now, normally when we think about birds, we think primarily about their flying conditions or if, uh, you know, you're on land sometimes, you know, what they do in, in the bush and many people you know, love observing birds in the bush, but you are more interested in what they do in the water. Tell us about that. I am indeed. So it's actually a double pun with my name as Ollie Dove. I study birds, but if you mispronounce it dove, I actually study how birds dive. So it also works. But yes, I am interested in what they're doing out at sea, underwater, all the behavior that we basically can't see them doing. And we want to understand their foraging to understand if we are having an impact or if changing environmental conditions are having an impact on that behavior. And when you say foraging, we essentially we're talking about them seeking their food sources. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So foraging is literally just a fancy way of saying finding dinner because the two seabirds, they move differently in the water and there's going to be different uh, constraints on their behavior. So, for example, the shearwater, because they can fly, they can go further afield or further awater, to be more accurate, to find better prey areas, whereas the little penguins are going to be more constrained in how far they can go. And how far, with the shearwater, how far will they go for a meal? And it must be a trade-off, presumably, between how much energy they use getting there and what they're actually consuming in particular locations. Definitely. So the short-tailed shearwaters, they have two main different foraging behaviours within the breeding season. So when they can feed locally around Tasmania. So go, I study the ones in the southeast. So the ones that I study might go up the east coast or they might go down to the southwest. And those short trips, they can be a day or three days. And they're primarily for improving their chick's condition and for feeding the chick. But every now and then, you know, um, an adult shearwater needs some R&R. They need some time to themselves. So they will go all the way down to Antarctica and those sort of trips we think are more for nourishing their body condition and looking after themselves and they can get all the way down there and back within two weeks which is incredible yeah that's a, that's so they're are they making stops because that's not a short distance Yes, no, it is not a um, a short distance at all. So they definitely do make stops. Um, and it's called a raft when you see lots of shearwaters in the sea all floating together. Um, but yes, they can get all the way and do grab some delicious Antarctic krill and then come back. And you can tell in the colonies, you can see when it's covered in the pink from the Antarctic krill, it's pretty cool to see. Well, amazing stuff. Now, in terms of the size of these these particular birds, I mean, these are little penguins, right? So they're uh, around a, a foot, I suppose, about, you know, 30, 40 centimetres. How, yes. how big are these two birds? Yeah, exactly. 30 centimetres is a good measurement for a little penguin. So they are the smallest of all the penguin species, and they weigh around between 800 grams and 1.5. I actually, the biggest I've ever had is 1,700 grams little penguins. Um, he was my favorite penguin on my last field trip, actually. He had such a little sassy attitude. I loved him. Uh, but the shearwaters are much smaller, so they may be between 500 and 600 grams. But interestingly, the shearwater weight can actually massively change depending on whether they fed their chick or already or not. Um, so that's really interesting that it's such a large proportion of their weight can be what they're about to provide their chick. Yeah, interesting. Now, obviously, these are two quite different birds in terms of their ranges, as you mentioned, and, and where they go. I, you know, the, the waters between Australia and Antarctica are not pleasant. They're not great. So how do you, how do you monitor, I assume you're not out there in the boat. So how do you, how do you monitor? No, I, 
<laughs> I mean, you know, bird watching on land is kind of, you know, I always have this image of sitting back with a glass of cognac and a, and a telephoto lens on a camera. But, you know, the waters between Australia and Antarctica are very different. So what what's involved in tracking and keeping an eye on these particular birds? Yeah, so I would absolutely love to be able to put on a wetsuit and just swim with a bunch of penguins in the water. I think that would be absolutely incredible to see and be surrounded by them. But unfortunately, I cannot do that. So what we do is we have these little devices called biologgers, and they look like an eraser. They don't look particularly impressive or world-changing, but they're actually, they are pretty they are very incredible in that we can attach them to the backs of the birds. Um, it's a well-known method using electrical tape on several layers of feathers. And what we do is that um, because the two seabirds are actually, they live in overlapping colonies in burrows, they're quite accessible to us. So if we know where the birds are, we can actually take them out of their burrows and put one of these little devices on their backs and they take them out to sea and they record the data for us, which we then process and use back here. Wow. And how many birds can you monitor at a given time? Oh, depends on the funding. So I have two types of biologgers. One is $80 each and they just record GPS locations. The other one, which records accelerometry, so the speed um, that the bird's traveling at and the pressure, which we can use to calculate how deep they are, those cost a grand and a half each. So we can reuse these uh, biologgers, which is great. However, When I do a penguin trip, which usually takes place in October, November, because we want to work with birds that have chicks so that we know they're going to be coming back. So we go out in October, November, penguins forage for a day and come back. They're pretty, it's pretty easy to get the the biologgers back. However, the shearwaters, I'm on the island I work on for up to five weeks at a time because we spend the first two weeks putting out as many tags as we can, hopefully getting short local trips and be able to reuse the biologgers. When I said tag, sorry, that was a short term for biologgers. However, sometimes they go off to Antarctica, so we have to wait for another three weeks to hopefully get as many of those biologgers back as we can. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned you you end up on one of these islands often, uh, and I think in your case it's Wedge Island. When when I've spoken to other researchers that do that sort of work, it's sort of something you have to endure if it's at a certain time of year. What's it like being <laughs> at Wedge Island for, would you say, five or six weeks? Yeah, so the maximum time I've spent there is five weeks. I've, across my PhD, I've accumulated six months on the island. Um, so it's my home from home. I absolutely love Wedge Island, but you get all weather conditions out there. So you're sort of you're at the mercy of the southern winds and there's we're camping the entire time and besides a hut there are no facilities at all so no showers no toilets so you really and you're living just under the colony it is incredible it is absolutely amazing and definitely i feel very lucky and fortunate that i got to experience it especially for such long periods of time yeah, that's great. I'm just sorry, just having a flashback to the nice warm laboratory in physics like, <laughs> comparison. Um, it's certainly that's the harder end of, of science when you're out there experiencing those conditions. And Ollie, in terms of our impact, uh, you know, which is part of what you're studying, are you seeing any of that in the data at this point with regards to these birds and their patterns and what they're doing? Yeah, so it's sort of 
as I'm about a month away from finishing, it's sort of almost too early to broadcast specific results or anything. But what I can say is that Tasmanian waters are actually warming at three to four times the global average. So it's a real hot spot for marine warming. And so we are expecting to see behaviours between marine heatwave years different from those that aren't, as well as there's, it's quite a, I'm not sure if controversial is the right word for it, but marine farming is a big discussion here in Tasmania and uh, recent booms in farms being put in and some are being put in near wedge as well so it is quite interesting to watch the locations of the foraging because fish farms are going to be attracting seals which obviously penguins aren't exactly going to be motivated to go near so those are the sort of things that I'll be looking out for and hopefully have some more conclusive results once they get yeah, shared early next year. Yep, fantastic. Now, Ollie, right before uh, you go, I should uh, ask you about the program you're involved with in science communication down there in Tasmania that uh, I remember years ago when it first started called That's What I Call Science. Just give us a little bit about that and also congratulations on winning one of the Eureka Prizes this year for that great work. So just tell us what that's about, that program. Thank you so much. Yes. So I also have been very lucky to be part of That's What I Call Science across my PhD. So I'm currently the weekly host, co-manager and an editor. And it is a weekly radio and podcast show based here in Lutrila, Tasmania. And what we do is we interview a different STEM, so science, tech, engineering, maths or medicine, researcher or professional every week. And we the aim of the show is to share the amazing work happening in Tasmania and the wide range of careers out there. And there's such a growing distrust in scientists and STEM professionals and the general public. So we want to bridge the gap between the people doing the work and the people that want to know about the work and just give STEM professionals a chance to directly talk to the public and directly share where so they don't have to hide their work behind you know academic papers or a lot of jargon they can just break it down and make it really easy to digest. Ollie Dove from the University of Tasmania thanks so much for chatting to us about all your work and the amazing activities you're doing down there. Thank you so much. Three. I'm Dr. Shane, and today I'm speaking with Ashley Geiger, a PhD student at the University of Adelaide and the Samri Gene Editing Program. Ashley, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much, Shane. It's great to be here. It's good to talk to you. Now, you're working on a, a very, very significant problem that's around the world known as retinitis pigmentosa. Um, let's unpack what that means. What's happening in the eye when someone has this particular condition? Yeah, so um, the retina is a really fascinating piece of tissue and it's crammed with heaps of different cell types. The ones I'm interested in are called rods. Now, these are a type of nerve um, that are very important in your retina. They're responsible for your peripheral vision, so at the sort of the edges of your visual field, and also um, a little bit for your night vision. And in retinitis pigmentosa, what we see actually is the death of these cells. Um, and it's quite devastating because these cells are not replaced. So you are born with all the rods you will ever have. Um, and so as they die, we see patients, unfortunately, becoming 
progressively more night blind and losing their peripheral vision. Um, but then we see patients losing their vision completely. It progresses to total vision loss. And right now, um, there are no treatments. There's nothing that can slow the progression of the, of the disease and there's nothing that we can do to cure it. That's what I've been trying to work on. Yeah, interesting. So in terms of when we talk about the progression, what mm. sort of time frame are we talking about? I mean, there's many different types of blindness that can occur or vision impairment. Yeah. Some are long, long term, you know, they take many, many years and some are mm. faster. Where does this one sit? This one's a little bit slower. So typically, um, patients will sort of start experiencing symptoms when they're um, in their teenage years or perhaps their early adulthood. Um, but usually within um, a few years or sometimes maybe a decade, that's when they'll be sort of classified as legally blind. Um, but it does vary um, from patient to patient. There are lots of um, different um, changes at the DNA level that can cause this particular disease and depending on what kind of change or mistake you have in your DNA can depend on how quickly you lose your vision. Interesting. And how do you diagnose this in a patient? Is it self-reported first that there are some vision problems and are those problems sort of specific to this condition or do they overlap with a lot of other visual problems as well? Yeah, it's a great question. They can overlap with other visual problems as well, particularly because sometimes the symptoms are pretty um, subtle at the beginning. You know, night blindness, by that we sort of mean, you know, when you're, when you're out at dusk, things are becoming a little bit darker and a bit less clear for you than they might be for other people. That's quite a subtle sign. And often by the time people go and see their doctor or their ophthalmologist, um, they've actually got quite progressive disease. Where it's um, distinct and where we can diagnose it is um, actually comes back to the name a little bit, retinitis pigmentosa. If you think about the word pigmentosa, you can hear it's got pigment in it. What actually happens in this disease is when you examine the back of the eye in these patients, it appears speckled with with pigment dots and it's because of this particular um, substance in um, the rod cells which are affected um, has this purple color and as they die they disperse throughout the um, the eye and we can actually visualize that yeah, yeah. interesting now this is a genetic disease so this mm. is this is something that presumably i'm i'm born with from my parents mm. is that how that works yeah, it is. So it is a genetic disease, lots of different causes um, at that genetic level. But um, for most patients, they have inherited one faulty gene from one of their parents. So only one parent has to carry that faulty gene for it to be passed on to their kids, which means it is passed on 50% of the time. Um, and yeah, often um, parents will have their kids before they're diagnosed themselves. And so then they've sort of passed on that disease without, without knowing that they had it as well. Right. And is there a 100% acquisition of the disease if you have that particular fault? Like I know in things like Huntington's disease and yeah. so forth, you don't necessarily end up with the disease. What's the scenario with this one? Yeah, good question. As far as I know, yeah, it's 100%, um, particularly for the, the genetic causes that I study um, the most, which are the most common genetic causes. Yeah, it, um, the mutation, DNA mutation I'm most interested in actually causes the buildup of a toxic protein in the, um, in the rod cell, which is what causes the death of the cell. Um, and if that gene is present, that protein will be produced and, and it will build up and, and cause that particular symptom. So yeah, it's 100%. Mm. Do, do we have an understanding of why it happens, uh, I want to say so late in life, but, you know, even teenage years are sort of potentially 15, 20 years into a person's life before this this sort of activates or kick, kicks in? Do we have an understanding of that? That's a good question. Um, we're still understanding a lot about this condition, but in terms of um, the mutations I study, 
really it's an accumulation of damage um so you sort of you know your rods will rod cells will do all right for a while um they're still a little bit functional they're not perfect um but basically as time goes on and you lose more and more of them because you have you have like millions of these cells in your retina right so if you lose one or two you're gonna be fine you're really not going to notice that anything's happened um but as you start losing a greater percentage of them that's when the symptoms are going to become more obvious yeah interesting now you're a molecular biologist, so you're looking at the the this single gene. There's this one gene that goes wrong for us. Yeah. So what can we do about that? That seems like something. If it's just one, we might be able to correct. What's the what's the hope? Great question. Correction is really really hard. <laughs> so what we're actually trying to do in our study is um, inactivate or turn off that gene. In genetics terms, we call that knocking out. A gene. So what we want to do is actually use something called CRISPR, which is um, a molecule that cuts DNA, and we want to target that CRISPR to the exact place in the DNA that has this mistake that's causing this problem. And what we can do with that CRISPR is create a break in the DNA that actually cuts out the sequence that's causing the problem. When we do that, it turns off that gene. So if you sort of imagine that the tap was on, and you have all this protein coming out of it because the gene is functional, we're able to kind of turn off that tap and stop that production of that um, toxic protein. And that can therefore hopefully allow the cell to to live and be a little bit more functional. So that's the, the strategy that we've been working on. I, I always find that interesting when you when you talk about that. Like it, it sounds like you're cutting one piece of DNA. We have DNA throughout our body. Mm. Obviously, it's functional in, in terms of producing those particular proteins that are problematic in the eye. Yeah. How do you how do you do this change for for the whole body in that sense? Like, does CRISPR deal with all the DNA DNA in my body and correct it all, or what, what does that look like? Great question. So for how I'm working on treating this disease, I'm looking at getting CRISPR just into the eye cells that are affected by this disease. So I only want to put CRISPR into the rod cells. So because of that, hopefully we're able to just make that correction or that um, chopping out, as you might like to say, um, in, in those particular cells that are affected. That means we can control it a little bit better. It makes the safety profile a little bit better as well. Um, and it means that we can also get more of the CRISPR where we want it to go rather than having to let it travel around the whole body to try and find its targets. But in theory, if you wanted to, yeah, you could deliver CRISPR, what we would say is systemically. So delivering to the whole body via route, it is possible. Yeah, and that that brings me to my next question, which is, mm. if I if this gene therapy is uh, successful in mm. a patient, and they then have offspring, mm -hmm. have you corrected for that sort of is it a germline sort of continuation of the yeah. disease through to the next uh, individual, or does that have to be a correction again in itself? So the correction needs to happen in the in the patient um, themselves. It's not passed on. So we have, I think, for really good reasons, some um, great legislation around what we can and can't do with gene editing. Um, it's you know, so in Australia we have some of the best legislation. I think in some countries they um, allow you to do a little bit more or perhaps um, see things a bit differently. But here, you know, we're very rigorous in that we we don't um, change the germline. Uh, we we really don't know at this point in time if we were to put change into a germline, what that would mean for the whole human who resulted. What we're able to do with this treatment, because we can target the eye so specifically, is we're able to get consent from that patient to really um, treat their eye cells very specifically. It is a one-time treatment, is the intention, so it would be you know, a, 
basically an injection in each eye and it would hopefully be only a single dose that's needed per patient um, and we would hope to kind of deliver that um, intervention as early as possible while they still have as many surviving rods as possible um, so you know probably in teenage years or young adulthood um, at the latest but yeah if you have had kids you know maybe the um, the treatment works for you it might be something you'd like to think about for your kids as well if they happened to inherit the disease for you yeah interesting now the the timing on this is is one of those scenarios where the clock is ticking very, very fast for, for some people who have recently, you know, found out they've got this disease. So where are we along the research path at the moment? Have you gone from the dish to actual <laughs> live models or are you still in the dish? Where, whereabouts are we sitting in that pathway? Yeah, so we are actually doing the preclinical experiments now. So that means testing it out in an animal model. Um, so very fortunate we have an animal model that actually carries a human copy of the gene, which means that our treatment that we've developed that we want to test, we want to, you know, one day work in humans can be tested in its exact form in the animal model, which is um, a bit of a luxury and not something we see with all of these, these studies. Um, so that's happening at the moment. Um, so I'm, I'm beginning to get very savvy with um, making injections in, in very small things. Um, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that we'll see some great results, you know, that we saw, you know, some great stuff happening in the dish. Um, we'd love to see that happening in the animal model. And the idea is that one day that would be enough data to kind of um, push that through to something like a clinical trial platform and see if we can help people as well. Yep. Amazing stuff. Now, Ashley, right before I let you go, um, you're also working on an alumni network focused on supporting women in STEM careers. Just give us a little bit about that. What are you up to there? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really lucky to be the president of the University of Adelaide um, Women in STEM Alumni Network. We're a pretty young network. We were founded in uh early 2021. So um, a fairly challenging period in <laughs> in history to try and start up um, a network that is sort of um, based on engagement. But basically what we try and do is we recognise that um, in traditional STEM careers, um, women face different um, and sometimes larger obstacles um, for than men do. And we really want to build and foster that community around those women to support them in that endeavour um, and sort of support them professionally as well as personally. Um, and we do that by running professional development um, events and by also running social events, just really kind of bringing together um, graduates who from the University of Adelaide who kind of have similar stories, who might be going through similar challenges, and also graduates who um, might have graduated last year, talking to people who graduated 20, 30 years ago and sort of exchanging those, those stories and learning from each other's um, career journeys. So it's a real privilege to be involved in that. Yeah, great stuff. Ashley Geiger from the University of Adelaide, thanks so much for chatting to me. Thank you very much. There we go, folks. Uh, we're pretty much at the end of the show. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. Susie, great having you uh, here to celebrate my solar power levels Always all the way pleasure. through. <laughs> I really, I'm, I'm just, do you get like a daily update, like a daily summary of what oh, you yeah. got? Oh, I feel yeah. like that would make a great addition to your daily coffee post on Twitter. You know, oh, the, just uh, like a recap just, of the last day. Just a recap day. of the last yeah. day and how much power's come in. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, you know, it could happen. I'm a sucker for fusion. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. that's, that's where it comes from uh, folks uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo a big thank you to our three guests today I'm Dr Shane remember science is everywhere we're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It have a great weekend and we will chat to you again next Sunday hi this is Dr Shane thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne Australia every Sunday Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.